Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I am your host, Stella, and this is Backgrounds Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 88 for October MMXIV. Backgrounds Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are December's Background Number 37 and Gotham Academy Number 3, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Also, Backroll Oracle is brought to you by tweakedaudio.com, high-performance noise-reducing earbuds. Purchasers who use the code TBUSAVES get 33% off their whole order and free worldwide shipping. Tweakedaudio.com. Plug in, turn up the volume, and give us a try. Backroll Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. 
Hashtag TBU family. Well, as always, I feel like there are some really tight months, months that I have more episodes than one, and it's usually in the summer. Sometimes it happens in the wintry months, and it definitely always happens in October as well. And I'm hoping this month we'll have a good lineup of episodes from Back of the Oracle. And of course, if you've been a longtime listener, you know there's always a regular one and a special one. And I'm actually, I don't want to spoil anything in case it doesn't happen, but I'm trying to get a another special thing going for October. So here's hoping that we will have an awesome month of Backroll to Oracle. Well, I do have a few comments and questions from the previous episode. Here's the mail, it never fails, it makes me want to wag my tail, when it comes I want to wail. I did talk to John uh, recently, and remember he and his wife are expecting are going to name their child Harper, and I thought, oh wow, is this from Harper Row? And I asked him, and he said certainly that was one of the reasons and one of the inspirations for it. So it was a good guess on my part, I just have to say. But the first email we have is from Ian Miller. He says, Dear Stella, great beginning to the Suicide Squad. I really enjoyed the way you narrate your reactions to the comics as you summarize. It's very engaging. I was a bit sad to hear you're not a Misfit fan. I've always rather liked her, even though she can be a bit obnoxious. I thought her inclusion in Batgirl 34 was a bit off, though. But then again, the whole issue was clearly a massive alternate universe homage to Simone's run on Birds of Prey. From the completely out-of-characterized Batgirl, her relationships to Huntress and Black Canary, especially considering what happened in Birds of Prey 34. Even the Babs pulls tons of people together to foil the bad guy's plan in a completely unforeshadowed deus ex machina felt bizarrely like the spy smasher arc from Birds of Prey. And I too wish they'd left eco-terrorist Rumi behind. Just don't like that situation at all. The villain's complete face turn after seeing the photo felt extraordinarily forced as well. I'm glad you pointed it out and I didn't feel like I'd missed something. I haven't been reading the book at all regularly, but to go for murderous vigilante planning to trying to tell Batgirl she's a good person in about two panels, well, that just doesn't ring true at all. As for the ending of Birds of Prey, I wish I could say that I felt sad, but the whole book has been such a pale imitation of the Dixon days with no real hint of the Simone days and their fast female friendships and character growth. Though I do think that the ending of the team in such a sad way is completely like the original ending of the Birds of Prey run by Tony Bedard. I still find it hard to forgive him for that, even if it was editorially mandated. Why does this book have to keep ending with such a whimper? Twice with the nasty breakup of the team because of editorial reasons. Once with a complete universe reboot on a cliffhanger slash really awful flashback episode. The concept deserves better, even if this most recent iteration of the book doesn't. Well, here's hoping that the new Batgirl team can bring new life to Babs. Hey, you raise a lot of good points, Ian. Yeah, I'm not really too much of a fan of Misfit. You know, I do have to admit, I don't know terribly much about her, but I just, I each appearance that I've seen, just she kind of rubs me the wrong way, and I felt like she's kind of a knockoff of Stephanie Brown. And, you know, it could just be my ignorance, like I said, of, of not reading as much about her, and perhaps when I get more into her history just by the show maybe I'll start to have a fondness of her but 
right now I, I'm just not really a fan of that. I totally agree just with Birds of Prey that, yeah, it, w it wasn't the best run. I, I think, you know, Swarzynski really started off strong, and then some of his plot lines were left dangling when he left, and there were just, there was too much focus, I think, with Marks on the uh, the husband aspect, Kurt Lance, and, and that just dragged on for so long, and I will continue to have a problem with having a man on the team and just the ending was was terribly disappointing for a fan of of the team and and you know a fan of the book birds of prey is just a great opportunity for the dc universe to have this all-female team and, and hopefully you know that they would be friends and and you're able to build relationships and have these interesting missions and to see that this book like fails for some reason and just doesn't last uh, i i don't know what that says about readership or um you know is it the way that they are being handled because i feel like Marvel's doing just fine with female-led books and, and female team books like X-Men, which, you know, are are made up of female members of the X-Men team. And, you know, you have Ms. Marvel and Captain Marvel and She-Hulk. All these wonderful things are, all these female-led books over in Marvel are doing so wonderful. But I feel like a lot of, and I won't say all because I know that there are some good female-led books in DC, but I feel like a majority of them are just not doing so well. And, um, yeah, it, it's sad because we won't see, you know, Dinah Lance anymore. And she wasn't the best character in New 52, but she is one of my favorites, and, and so I'll be sad to see her go. But I'm hopeful that maybe something comes back after Eternal with, you know, introducing different characters and, and seeing Stephanie Brown there and, and seeing that potential future with, uh, which we'll talk about in Future's End, with these Batgirls. Do we have a potential of having a Batgirl team-up book or another bir chance at Birds of Prey somehow? So we can only hold out hope, but I, I, I so feel your sentiments, and uh, I, I too am sad about all this. Next up from Clinton, he says, Hello, I just recently found out about your podcast. I, too, am a huge fan of Babs. She always has been my favorite Batgirl and always will be. I probably got introduced to her initially through the 66 show and then reintroduced to her through both the comics and the animated series. Thank you for doing this podcast. It is a wonderful thing to listen to while I'm out for a morning jog or while I do data entry at work. Your voice is very even and relaxing and helps take the stress out of my job. Again, thanks so much for doing this podcast. Both it and you are wonderful. Oh, thanks, Clinton. It's funny you say about my voice <laughs> because I have a friend. Who knows if he, he could still be awake as he's listening to this. But I have a friend. His name is Jay. He's written in a couple times. And uh, he only listens to my podcast when he's like about to go to bed or sleeping. So I don't know what that says about my show that someone can <laughs> listen to it. Maybe it is so relaxing and it just and maybe yes just just as he said just gets rid of that stress that he's able to easily fall asleep but I, I'm glad to hear thank you so much for for writing in and, and I hope that you continue to enjoy the the show and, and learn and yeah catch up on those back podcast episodes uh, even though there's some the heavy breathing problem I'll always remember it but I also remember the good old days of 20 minutes I joked about that recently with Josh and Donovan about could we do a 20 minute podcast but uh, they asked how did you even do that and I said I don't know because I was still reviewing I think four books but I, I didn't have all the other extra segments that I had but anyways thanks Clinton I definitely appreciate your comments and yes thank you 
for saying that my voice is relaxing. I do appreciate that. And finally, we have from Adam. Oh, yeah, and, and by the way, Adam, if you remember, was the one who emailed in and, and recommended Nightwing the Lost here. And I actually did some research post-episode to see, you know, what was this? What did it entail? And I actually found that it does contain actual issues from Nightwing. It actually collects Nightwing 133 to 137. And, of course, that one controversial issue, Nightwing Annual Number 2. I swear, when I get to that, you know who's going to be on here is Josh Bertone. We're probably going to have a brawl, and I will have to... I'll have to raise my voice at him. But yes, so I just wanted to let you know that you can, in fact, uh, buy this Nightwing the Lost Year. And uh, it collects about five issues or so from Nightwing's run. But Adam writes in and he says, Good grief, that's some crappy customer service to refuse to help you just because certain critters aren't on their list, especially for the apartment complex you pay to live in. At least the maintenance guy came by both times anyway. Glad you're okay. Sounds like quite the ordeal. Hope they get those holes sealed up for you. Yes, as we speak, it's been about three weeks, like 21 days since an incident, and luckily no creatures. I mean, of course, I do see spiders around, but, you know, you just kind of deal with them. The character of Oracle is as old as I am. We were both born in January of 1989. I didn't know that was when she first appeared. I guess I shouldn't have since I was a newborn baby at the time and didn't learn of Oracle's existence until sometime after Batman the Animated Series ended anyways. I can't imagine that the Suicide Squad was controlled by chips in 1989. The evidence in the story supports that, since if they were, they would have died the moment their treachery was known. I guess chips and skin or whatever weren't really a big thing for another decade or so after that. And I can't stand Amanda Waller. She's just so rude and hateful to the heroes of the DC Universe. And I just don't see how she hasn't had the whole operation blow up in her face yet. Although I suppose she did kind of get her comeuppance in the animated adaptation of Assault on Arkham. Granted, my opinion of her is based on her appearance in the Justice League cartoons. Wow, I'm surprised you haven't read The Count of Monte Cristo yet. I read it in high school. I used to read so much more back then. I just don't have the time anymore. My time was filled with college and making costumes for my cosplay in college and work and cosplay making now. I make time for comics on the weekends and I read bits of whatever novel I'm working on before Sunday school and before the worship service. As much as you read, especially since you focus on classics, I just assumed you'd already read it. Well, I've read it now, so there you go. I think I was attracted to it because it reminded me of Batman. Yes. Dantes wanted revenge, very unlike Batman, but the lengths he goes to do so is definitely reminiscent of Batman. Granted, Batman traveled the world for years to learn everything necessary to become Batman, but still, the detail with which the Count planned his revenge is ingenious and combined with his knack for altering his plans to deal with unforeseen circumstances definitely puts him up there with Batman. And Dantes also traveled the world and and learned a lot about his uh, adversaries and, and, of course, set himself up in his background so very similar in that manner as well if you like anime you should check out Gonkutuo the Count of Monte Cristo that's the best adaptation of the book in my opinion sure they change and leave out quite a few things but they are very caring and respectful of the original work the movie starring Jim Caviezel as Edmond Dantes was a travesty I actually recently rented that from Amazon they made no effort to show the scope and grandeur of his plans and just totally missed the point in the end 
The magnitude of patience with which he waited for his plans to come to fruition was completely ignored in favor of gutting the story to fit it in a single film. That was their first and greatest mistake. They should have gone for a trilogy. The movie was great up until he escaped the prison, but the rest of the film was rushed beyond belief. It would have been so much better if they'd spent the rest of the film showing him reward his friends for their kindness. Heck, there's a scene in the book which would have made the perfect bookend for the first film. Once he has satisfied himself with rewarding morale in his family, and a few others, he has a nice line about being finished with it and that he's now ready to begin his revenge with a clever metaphor about poison, which he uses multiple times throughout the story. The second part would deal with him focusing on moving to Paris and laying down all his plans. There isn't as clear of a place for this film to end, probably with the death of his first victim, but the final film would most certainly focus on him finally exacting revenge on all the rest of his enemies. But alas, Hollywood does not possess the grace or patience for such a masterpiece. Then again, they did pull it off with The Lord of the Rings, although they managed to screw up the last film a bit, and The Hobbit. So perhaps all hope is not lost. Frankly, I don't think The Hobbit should have been a three- film adaptation but that's my opinion at least they attempted it many years ago with the three musketeers unfortunately that film focused way too much on the comedy and not enough on the adventure and the brilliant details dumas infused into the tale they cut so much out and filled it in with so much garbage at least in the first film i've yet to get my hands on the second film the four musketeers which seems to do a much better job of following the rest of the book without being bogged down by slapstick comedy that and it was only two films the most recent version of this film at least followed the story much more closely although it still changed the overall tone a bit that's actually another dumas novel that i have yet to read and it i think it's on my reading list so i'll have to consider reading that soon Actually, while I have not had the opportunity to read the book, aha, it was based on the movie The Man in the Iron Mask does a much better job of capturing the tone of The Three Musketeers. Well, this is a much darker story than that, although The Three Musketeers did take a dark turn near the end of the story. And the characters. Personally, I think they would have been better served to switch the roles of Aramis and Athos. Athos was always more of a tall, dark, but silent type that could become as hard as iron when necessary, like Jeremy Irons, while Athos would have been a more mild-mannered, soft-spoken priest, like John Malkovich. But alas, they had Jeremy Irons in the role of the mild-mannered priest, Aramis and John Malkovich as a strong, well, he felt a bit weak, but he managed to pull it off at the same time, quiet Athos. They both did very well in the roles, of course, as they are very brilliant actors. I suppose they mistook Athos' quiet nature with John Malkovich's soft-spoken nature. If they want to go that route, Viggo Mortensen would have been a better choice, as he can be loud and strong when necessary. But he was probably too young and unknown in 1998, because I remember seeing that film. But Gerard Depardieu? was absolutely perfect as Porthos. We also get some good acting from a young Leo Caprio. Yes, a heartthrob. One of the final scenes of the film sums up what the characters stand for and shows why. Despite the comedy present in The Three Musketeers, slapstick is not an appropriate tone for any film starring the characters. Oh well, maybe one day we'll get the perfect film series for The Count of Monte Cristo and The Three Musketeers. If only a good director with a taste for the elaborate and elegant details of a story, ahem, like Peter Jackson, ahem, were to pick them up.
Once again, I've written a long email. Sorry about that. Anyway, I look forward to reading the first issue of the revamped Batgirl series and the Future's End issue, which I have, but have not had a chance to read yet. And hearing your thoughts on it, doubtless in the same podcast that you will read this message. That's very true. Uh, thanks, Adam, for writing in. Your detailed emails are always much appreciated, and I'm, I'm glad that you take time to write that and just send me your thoughts. I, I love reading and then watching film adaptations on those just because I think you get a better sense at who these characters are because movies don't necessarily have that amount of time and I think that's probably what you know Count of Monte Cristo is two hours and 15 minutes or so but you know to make a full to make that into a well-rounded movie you would have to it'd have to be really long Gone with the Wind style or two films but I don't think they would ever try to to split it up and make a trilogy on that to be honest because I, I don't think it would have captured audiences but when you read you really understand I think the characters more so going in you're already just on par almost with with you know with the actors themselves and with those characters whereas people who have never read it before you're coming in new and it's a very different perspective but at the same time when you read things you can easily get disappointed and uh, you have to think about uh, Game of Thrones season four really different from that last part of the third novel and you know now I'm trying to sort of separate myself and, and think of it as The Walking Dead where Robert Kirkman has already said that The Walking Dead of course you know he he mostly stays I think to the, the nature of his book and and really main main moments and and actions and things like that but the TV show gives him an an opportunity to do something different and to go down a divergent path and now I'm trying to think of Game of Thrones in that way where yeah we have the books but now I think they're they're keeping to it in spirit but they're they're doing things a little bit differently and and perhaps if if I think about it that way I won't become so upset when weird things are happening yes so I do try to do that and I try to convince one of her, my friends to do the same but she's not having it even though she also watches Walking Dead but yeah you know I, I think you can be a lover of of books and a lover of movies but sometimes I, I just feel like you won't ever be like fully satisfied as at how a, a movie adaptation has you know been done maybe there will be one that's you know fully it, it meets our expectations that'd be good but uh, yeah so uh, enough of my ramblings uh, thank you Adam for writing in I, I very much appreciate it keep on reading keep on reading those classics well, that's all I have for the comments and questions for this month. Remember, you can write into Oracle at gmail.com if you have comments or questions. And maybe, just so I don't misstep, you should mark OK to read, just like Marvel Comics does, OK to read. So that way, uh, <laughs> if you send me something that you don't want aired, then, you know, then will be okay and I, I won't do it uh, otherwise I I'm just happy that you know I'm getting emails and comments and things like that so I'm probably going to read it on air okay well Suicide Squad so remember where we last left off the characters went over to Africa and they were on a mission to help a nun so 
then I skipped the next issue because, in fact, Barbara Gordon does not appear in it. But I thought to keep sequence and, you know, some of the things that go on in 25 help us better understand 26, I'd at least give you a very short uh, summary of what happens in number 25. And the story for number 25 is Sea of Troubles. So Waller is still being investigated by the Congressional Committee. And after a day of interviews, she speaks with the head of the committee and convinces him to drop the charges and sanction the squad as an official and sponsored agency. And it's now headed by J. Danfield Kane, who is, well, actually a paid actor and Waller is still the head of the Suicide Squad. Meanwhile, the squad finally rescues the nun they were sent for. Shriek, a.k.a. Vanessa Kingsbury, dies. And at one point, some of the members turn on the others in order to make a clean break from the squad, since, of course, Waller is not watching them as closely as she normally would. At the end of the issue, Nightshade, the daughter of the head senator of the committee who was investigating Waller, quits. But Waller says that people can leave or die, but the squad will go on. So now here's our actual review. Suicide Squad number 26, Stone Cold Dead. And the cover date is April 1989. Writer John Ostrander, guest penciler Grant Miem, inker Carl Kiesel, colorist Carl Gafford. At Jotunheim Mountain in Kurak, a facility that was once used by the Nazis and thought impregnable, it now serves as the base of the terrorist organization known as the Jihad. What a clever name. Rustam receives a call from President Marwo. Rustam is a member of the Jihad, and they discuss the plan to destroy the Suicide with, as it seems, created superhumans. They're kind of test tube people. Elsewhere, Vicky Vale interviews Kale, the fake head of the Suicide Squad, and he's very good at his acting. But Waller is still the real head of the squad. And speaking of Waller, she goes to her apartment to see uh, another Waller. Hmm, that's strange. Flo reminds us that Waller told her to plant a virus to trap Oracle. And Flo is stating her displeasure about this as Oracle appears and tells them, well, don't do that to me again. Oracle herself has left a virus along with a vaccine. And, well, they have three hours and next time there's not going to be any vaccine, so don't cross me again. We then see Oracle at her base, but we only see her hands, and we see a Batgirl doll saying that her help will be needed. Not the doll. Babs is saying this. Well, Oracle is saying this. Saying that her help will be needed, and then she'll get what she wants in return. Elsewhere, we see Ben and Mari, a.k.a. Bronze Tiger and Vixen, saying goodbye as Mari goes off on her business. I wonder if she's a model like she was in Justice League Animated. Mari gets hit in the face with a pie, and later, so does Ben. And frankly, I don't understand where these pies are coming from. I felt like I was reading a Deadpool comic. Two characters are trying to requisition the mind of Ifrit, a.k.a. Mindboggler, but again, I can't tell what's going on, and I actually did research trying to find out, but I couldn't find out. So, readers, if you know, if you've read the 80s, the, the original of the first volume of Suicide Squad, and you know what they're doing, you can answer these questions for me, please email me. I would appreciate it. At Capitol Hill, Deadshot's freedom is being debated, and he ends up being released into Simon Legree's care. 
Remember, he worked for Waller but quit LaGrieve. He was one that got fed up because, well, she doesn't really care for her squad members. And finally, Eve, a.k.a. Nightshed, the girl who, or the lady, who quit last issue, reads a letter from Rick Flagg, who speaks of a mission his father was on at Jotunheim Mountain and mentions an atomic bomb that may still be there. He tries to explain what happened with the late Senator Tolliver, which is basically I picked up right after that when I was reviewing with the first appearance of Oracle and Flag wants to make up for this so he goes to Jotunheim encounters Zustam who is mentioned in the beginning of course fights him and detonates the atomic bomb destroying the base and dying in the process he thanks her for her friendship and only wishes he could have done more as she cries as she's reading this and next up the Giannis Directive, but if we are proper Latin students, we would say the Giannis Directive. Remember that Giannis is in fact the god of doorways, and that's where we get January, and so you'd kind of put up a likeness of him as pass through a doorway, or, you know, January, if you think about it, welcoming the old and saying goodbye to the new. But anyways, enough about that. That would be for another episode. Yes, so there is a lot of stuff going on in this issue things I don't understand like mind boggler and well the pies things that are weird like the Amanda Waller double which was actually hinted at rather heavily in the previous issue there were cameramen and reporters asking her that she just seems completely different a senator who backed her thought that she was either a, a totally different Amanda Waller she's been lying all these years and she like looks at the camera and says maybe I am a different Amanda Waller so that was heavy heavy handed and here we know I, I have no idea what's going on with it though again the pie incident and then we have Deadshot and Rick Flag being sought out in order to help them Deadshot is not pictured or uh, he does not appear in this issue and then Rick Flagg of course is off on his own thing so it's more of a speaking of him here he is trying to make up for what happened now I personally would say that Rick Flagg's story is the main part of the issue you know while there are many other stories here this is the central and most important part and and almost you're very sympathetic I think for him and I don't know all the stuff that went down with Tolliver and and what he was involved in but you know, you, you read this and you see Nightshade's reaction and it's it's pretty emotional. How ironic that he goes to the very base of the person that's trying to destroy the squad. So we see him at the beginning, we see him at the end. You know what that we call that, listeners? We call it ring composition. If you're a fan of TBU, I've said that many times. So maybe you can take a shot. Who knows? I liked the letter to Nightshade that Flag was willing to die to make up for what happened to Kraya Tolliver and you know it was a sad letter I think but it was also an honorable letter and an honorable way to die. But let's talk about Oracle here because that's the show right? Backroll Oracle. This would be the moment that in shock we say OMG it's Barbara Gordon. While her face is not revealed, a Batgirl doll is, and this is a big thing. And one can make a reasonable assumption that it is, in fact, Babs. Oracle in this issue shows her strength and abilities. Uh, Strength, I mean, not like muscle strength, but of course, in convincing other people, in showing her power, her intellect, almost a bit of a threat, right? You know, telling the IT people in Waller that she's not messing around. 
Her speech after she closes the connection, I think, is also revealing. She seems a little desperate, saying that they will use her and they will need her, but then she can get what she wants. So you kind of wonder what that means. It seems like she really wants to get in bed with the squad, but I think, you know, the question is why and what does she want. So hopefully that is revealed, but it's a very slow burn. It is a slow burn, folks, you know, getting to know Oracle here. This issue was all over the place. And if it had focused, I think, more on Flag, I, I think it would have been better. There are just some really bizarre moments, as I've said. And not only for a new reader like myself, this is the fourth uh, Suicide Squad issue that I've read. But, you know, I think an old one would also be a little confused. Just characters popping up that we've not seen for four issues. Ifrit, where, who is this person? I mean, I, I'm sure an old reader would know who it was, but who are the people experimenting on her? What are they doing? What's going on? Mind Boggler, aka, I don't know. So I'm going to give this a, a 6 out of 10. And, and really the only thing that's keeping it a little high is the, the Rick Flag story. The next issue is, hey, I'm going to be a new reader again. It's a Manhunter issue. So I first wanted to talk about who Manhunter is, because there are several people. And this particular person is Mark Shaw. So as a young man, Mark was a public defender, unhappy about how easily criminals manipulated the system and got off without punishment. Shaw's uncle, Desmond Shaw, introduced him to an ancient sect of crime fighters called the Manhunters. So Shaw contacted the Grand Master, the sex leader, through a magical line medallion, and shortly he assumed the Manhunter name and a costume from the previous Manhunter. And actually, these Manhunters originally were androids that were created billions of years before by the guardians of Oa to police the galaxy. And if you've seen Justice League, you know, you probably know this history here. So they served the guardians, but then they just became obsessed with the act of hunting criminals and their code, No Man Escapes, The Manhunters, became more important to them, I think, than, than seeing justice done. And eventually they, they rebelled, but they were defeated by their creators, and then those that survived went into hiding. So that's kind of the history of The Manhunters and who Mark Shaw is. Because, well, we're not starting with issue one, friends. We're starting with Manhunter number 13, Takedown. And the cover date is May 19. 89. Writer Kim Yale, wife to John Ostrander, penciler John Cock, inker Pablo Marcos, colorist Juliana, or Juliana, sorry, Juliana Ferreter, and hey, special note here, Barbara Kiesel is the editor. Mark spars with his sensei when suddenly he is distracted by a camera. Reporter Howard Baxter Foote appears and begins an introduction to a Manhunter special, but Mark swipes the microphone. Mark showers and meets Howard outside where he reiterates what he told him that morning, namely that his job is dangerous and he doesn't want Howard tagging along. Mark goes to the police department to gather information on outstanding warrants. He whittles the choices down to three, Catman, Mirage, and the duo Cannon and Saber. He meets Mark Phelps, the newest warrant officer, who is eager to meet Manhunter as he sees his bounty hunting as a tremendous help to the police department. Mark asks after Sylvia Kendrev, but Phelps doesn't know of her. Mark goes to Elliot Shaw's offices and calls Belle Reeve to speak with Flo that we know from Suicide Squad uh, about the three bounty choices. Flo believes Cannon and Saber are dead and provides minimal information on the other two. However, she gives Mark information to contact Oracle instead of Flo due to her fear that Amanda Waller would not approve. Mark contacts Oracle who is only too eager to help. 
Mark then returns to his apartment and speaks with Sister Sassy, who gives him information on Mirage. Mark opens, oh, Sister Sassy, I, oh man, what a great name. Mark opens a package from Southern Cross Salvage Corporation, in which is a crystal kangaroo and a note that his new gadgets will be ready in two weeks. Mark then makes one final call, an appointment for tomorrow morning. At 10.30 a.m., Mark meets with Ray Gurevich at the Daily Star offices. Ray used to cover courtroom news where he met Mark Shaw numerous times. Ray grants Mark access to the newspaper files and Mark researches Mirage and Catman. Mark then goes to the county municipal traffic court and records for more research and he asks about Sylvia there but gets nowhere. Back at his apartment, he dons a tuxedo for his evening engagement but decides to bring the mask and baton that he uses as Manhunter. He picks up Eleanor and takes her to the county museum where a function is being held. Eleanor, of course, is his sister. Or I shouldn't say of course because I wouldn't have known. In the parking lot, he sees a car with a license plate Gato One, which, friends, if you speak Spanish, is Cat. So he makes a quick phone call. Inside was the star attraction, a 4,000-year-old statue of Bast, Egyptian cat goddess, which is very shortly snatched by Catman. Unfortunately, Catwoman does not appear in this issue. Mark dons his mask and intervenes. After a brutal fight, Mark is seriously injured. Catman heads outside empty-handed to find his car being impounded. Mark had recognized Catman's vanity plate and knew there were outstanding parking tickets. So he called the police on it. Manhunter is able to knock Catman out in the parking lot. Eleanor then takes Mark for emergency stitches. The next day, Mark is again meeting with his sensei when Sylvia arrives. Mark apologizes for getting her in trouble, and the two agree to talk. Well, I have to say that this issue, I had an, uh, a slightly easier time getting into it as a first-time reader than The Suicide Squad. And I think perhaps it's because there's only one character, uh, whereas, you know, Suicide Squad, there are many, and you're... All this stuff is going on, scene changes and such. But this issue wasn't nearly as intriguing and probably wouldn't keep me wanting to come back if I had to judge just from this. The story was very much a one-shot, going after one particular villain, getting him arrested because of parking tickets, no less, and mending fences with an old friend whom I have no idea about. But the Sylvia at the end is actually... A very important character for our purposes not only because there is potential shipping between Mark and her but because of a villain that will interest us so the alleged molester Ashley Mavis Powell had secretly infiltrated the police department under the name Paladero and discovered Sylvia investigating her file. She managed to purge the information from Sylvia's computer, arousing Sylvia's suspicions. And Sylvia managed to uncover Ashley's real identity and share the information with Mark. Mark later saved Sylvia from Ashley, leading to Ashley's arrest and Sylvia's, unfortunately, temporary suspension from the force, which is why he's apologizing to her at the end of this particular issue. So if you recall, Mavis is also known as Interface and was the villain that we saw Oracle go up against in Oracle Year One. So, while separated by degrees, it's important that Oracle makes an appearance in this issue, 
albeit a behind-the-scenes appearance. And maybe there's going to be a connection somehow between Sylvia and Oracle. Who knows right now? And of course, you know, it is important that Kim Yeo is writing this issue as she and her husband, as we learned from the, the Killing Joke special, and, you know, she had worked with him on Oracle things as well. So this is this is important. So if we were to just look at Oracle's appearance, it is definitely clear, even to non-readers of Suicide Squad, that it's Barbara Gordon or well, at least someone with an affinity for Batgirl dolls. It's very interesting that Flo gives Mark Oracle's contact when Flo doesn't really know Oracle very well. I think that was very trusting. And Flo may be nervous about getting in trouble by Waller for giving information, but what about passing on Oracle's contact info when Waller doesn't trust Oracle yet? So Flo kind of a little sketchy decision there. While a small appearance, this is actually very important for Oracle's history because she is connecting to other characters other than Suicide Squad and really sowing the seeds for what she will become as this information source for the DCU. At least Mark is a little wary about Oracle, wanting to know what she wants from him. So I, I mean, that's better, I think, than, than other people. So he's a bit on the line of Amanda Waller, but he doesn't take any aggressive moves like trying to plant a virus so perhaps they will team up again which spoiler they do because i have to read some more manhunter issues so you know a decent issue not one that gets me excited about the main character manhunter but one that has uh, a small and and key moment in oracle's history and we could almost say key moments since sylvia returns and we get to know sylvia and that history that i just gave you so i'm going to give this six out of ten bats you know, I'm just thinking as I was doing that, if I should change my rating system because I've been doing bats since she was Batgirl, but now that she's Oracle, maybe I have to say something like data bytes. Six out of ten data bytes. Hmm. I'll have to consider this. Maybe someone can send a good uh, suggestion. Well, anyways, that's it for the vintage stock. And, you know, getting into it. Now I'm going to try to read even the issues of Suicide Squad that are not required just so I know what's going on and, and I can be better informed. As I said, I was going to try to do from now on. So there you are. And next time I'm just going to do the whole story, the the Janus directive. So we'll see what, even though she, uh, Oracle is apparently just behind the scenes in two issues, so it could be a waste. But that should be interesting, I guess, to just spotlight on that particular DC crossover in uh, the 80s. Well, going to take a break, as I always do, listeners. And when I come back, I'm going to review Futures and Batgirl, Wes Simone. So let's see if she goes out with a bang or not. And Futures and Birds of Prey. Last Birds of Prey. Last Christy Marks. Let's see how this one ends. But first we have Zias' Radio Hour featuring Doll Parts by Hole. I am doll eyes, doll mouth, doll legs. I am.
Welcome back. You know, I first heard that song, Doll Parts, on Defiance, and for some reason, I don't know, I like it. It is very, it's it's strange, it's a strange song, but I like it, and I, I thought that it kind of flowed with the, the future's end issues that we have here. So this is it. It's the end of two different eras, and hey man, it did, did it go out with a banger or a whimper, so let's check it out. First up, we have Futures and Batgirl, Darker in the Soul. Writer Gail Simone, artist Javier Garon, colorist Romulo Fajardo Jr. Barbara Gordon married Stephen Harris three years ago another ginger. He was a cop and the psychological associations with that were not lost on her at the time. At her wedding, her friend and former roommate Alicia and her pregnant girlfriend were in attendance, prompting Stephen to hint that he might like to have children with Barbara. The wedding was interrupted though by her psychotic brother James, who ends up pointing a gun at Barbara and insisting that her new husband walk off the roof of the GCPD headquarters to his death in order to save her. Barbara rushed her brother but she was too late to prevent Stephen from killing himself for her and that was then she stopped loving Gotham City and Batgirl died that day with her husband. Now there are three women with membership in the League of Batgirls who do not work for the Batman but for Bette Noir, a vigilante more punishing than even the Batman. Together Cassandra Kane, Tiffany Fox and yes Stephanie Brown take down a gang of car thieves who outnumber them. Still, Bette Noir warns that no ring of car thieves would dare stand up to their, her agents, which begs the question why a pair of them are trying to run the girls down in their car. Single-handedly, Stephanie smashes the windshield of the car and covers the drivers with, yes, a gooperang. It returns! She then reports back after searching the car that the men weren't thieves, they were gun runners, and they work for Bane. Hearing this, Bette Noir orders the girls home. Barbara had done nothing for the six months following her botched wedding besides hunt data. She became an inside person in Gotham crime. Somehow the crooks never expected her to turn on them. They barely noticed her until her hand was around their throat. It took her two years to dismantle 70% of the crime syndicates in Gotham and Barbara Gordon was off the map forever. She learned all she could from each crook she broke and faced the last remaining villain she knew. Bane. And I love that page. I, I do have to say just uh, with her and Penguin and Riddler and then, you know, clutch it really like a broken Riddler in the end. And then in behind you see her, you you only see her hand sort of scratching Man Bat as if he were a pet. And, and I just, I love that pan, uh, page. It's just wonderful. For six months, she was not allowed to speak to his soldiers. She trained all day and cleaned the latrines. She was not allowed to see Bane until she made a statement out of snapping one of his shoulder's arms. Her training then continued in a different way. He had her drive him to kill the best fighter in a remote country, a warlord, merely to prove his superiority. It was only moments into their fight that Bane snapped the man's spine over his knee, a la Batman, and you know what? I threatened my students that I would break them the same way. It's how I show my love. He took the man's so soldiers from him and continued his campaign. Barbara tried to withhold her own disgust for his actions because she's still undercover. They fought and trained for so long that Barbara began to feel as though he was one of three father figures in her life. One day, he wondered aloud why she continued to fight him, why she wanted to defeat him so much. She responded that she actually wanted to be him, not beat him. He responded that if she intended to do that, she would have to use venom, as he did. So, she became Bette Noir. When she had the chance to kill him, she didn't, and she couldn't, and she decided to leave. And she was never a child again after that. So now, 
Bane contacts her in her hideout and warns that he has been watching the three Batgirls, and though they are talented, they will not find the six bombs he has placed in the crowded areas around Gotham. If she intends to stop him, she will have to come to him herself and complete her training. When the Batgirls return to the cave, they find that Barbara is gone, and she has left only a message conveying her intent to face Bane alone, and that she doesn't expect to see them again. Her farewell show her care and admiration for each of her wards. When Bane sees her, he admits that he has always known that she was Barbara Gordon. He believes she came to him those three years ago because she wanted to lose. She wanted him to break her spine and put her in the wheelchair again to make her life what it was before the wedding. Defiantly, Barbara punches him in the jaw, knowing he never understood her. He persists, reminding that she only came now because she wanted to see it come to an end. His words shake her as she begins to doubt her own motivation. Still, she steals herself and comments that she knows him as he knows her. It was never enough for him to break someone physically. He had to crush her souls. He will not succeed in that with her today. She has lost everything. But she still remains, and as it happens, she wants to live. Barbara tears the mask from her face, revealing her tearful smile as she beats him brutally, revealing to his surprise that she actually never took and used his venom. She had made herself a goddess, as she says, on her own steam. Powerfully, she knocks him unconscious, and as he falls, he woozily admits that her training is complete, but weakly releases the pressure-sensitive detonator. Fortunately, Tiffany catches the device and saves the city. When the others catch up to her, Barbara admits that she'd like to be called by her real name again, though it's been years, and this is very much a flashback to when Barbara first encounters Dino Lance in person. She says, call me Barbara. She hugs her wards to her and admits to herself that while she had left, in a wonderful way, through these young women, Batgirl never really left Gotham at all. The end. Well... I'm going to surprise you and say that I thought that this was a pretty good issue and perhaps the best, I want to say, if not one of the best issues of Simone's tenure here on Batgirl. So there are some problems that I have with it, however, uh, but it doesn't taint the overall issue. The first is just the beginning, and, and I think that this is probably the weakest part of the entire issue. So first of all, let's talk about her husband. Uh, this guy, he's a ginger, he's a cop, he's nice. Do you think he seems like the type of guy Babs would marry? It's just, just I, I don't know. Do you think this was an easy husband to, to gather, an easy relationship to create? Uh, you know, this cop, you know, is she marrying him because of who she is and of who her father is or something that she really wants. Do you see any Dick Grayson at all in him? I mean, we don't really get to know this guy much at all. Can you tell if he jokes around? And I guess I always see, you know, Dick Grayson as being that one. So can I compare Steven here to Dick? Does he seem like this kind of guy that, that Babs would marry? And it's hard to say because you only see him in a few pages. But I, I just feel like it's it would have been, I think, interesting to see what it would have been like to have her marry someone that we had known rather than pulling someone just out of nowhere, creating a new character. Unfortunately, Jason Bard right now is evil, so we couldn't have used him, although that would have been a nice little 
connection, I think, back to the pre-New 52. Could have had Ted Cord or someone interesting like that. But So we have this Stephen Harris guy. So that's just one critique. But, you know, again, we don't know much about him. So how much really can I say about it? Uh, Alicia and her life partner. It's good to see that Alicia has settled down with somebody. And uh, she's not dating from her couch as she was in that one issue. And I'm hoping that, I said in TBU that it's different from the person that she was dating. And now I'm trying to think if that's true or not. Of course, she's blonde here. And uh, Joe or whoever it was that she, um, I still disagree with that relationship, if that's what it is, that she was making out with on the couch was the very same redhead as Barbara was, which remember, I made that statement as to whether Alicia is wanting something that she cannot have. But anyways, it's good to see like, it seems like just in those few panels that she seems to be a more stable personality. Maybe she's not doing as, as much anarchy as she had been in the past. There's that ambiguous statement about the commissioner that, you know, I just wish father were, well, is your father dead or is he still in jail because of eternal? So a lot of ambiguity there, kind of a tragic sense and, and feeling being set over the wedding, which is unfortunate. And then here's my big problem here. James appears. And does the whole interaction even make sense? A cop can't defend himself. They're on the roof of the GCPD. I mean, does Steven really have to jump? Uh, I, I just felt like this was forced tragedy to get Babs to be the way she is in the rest of this issue. I think that there was probably a better way, you know, perhaps with her father, someone readers know and care about. Her father getting killed, something finally happening to him five years later. Why not do that rather than this, let's get James back. Which, you know, it makes sense that James is here. James could have killed his father. We could have done that. But, I mean, a cop isn't going to defend himself and go after this guy. Let's, you know, I don't know, rush him, get shot maybe in the arm, I think. Something, I don't know. So this is my biggest problem is just shock factor. We've got to have James. He's going to create this tragedy. But I don't like it. We go back, girls. What are your guys' thoughts just to see Cass and to see Steph? Tiffany is cool, but right now she doesn't really do much. I mean, I think she's too young. I'm actually kind of shocked that she's even working right now in the field. But just to see Cass and Steph again is just wonderful. And to see them work together and their interactions were just so well written, spot on, could really feel the Stephanie Brown voice and just having Cass uh, stand there at one point and just show a lot of respect and uh, admiration for Stephanie was just great and, and I think harkens back to their really strong and loving relationship that they had back then. So I just love this. And then, you know, Babs is the hub slash operator really great because that flashes back I think to her as Oracle and it's interesting because she could probably be out there in the field so that's a little weird but it is nice in the fact that it is flashing back to her history like I said I, I like how Babs infiltrates the criminal empires and takes them down I think that that was really smart and it's interesting how Bane is the most difficult to infiltrate and she doesn't go for Raish al Ghul because, I mean, he did pop up in Birds of Prey, so there is that connection. But perhaps they just always leave him for Batman, even though he hasn't had uh, much of an interaction with him New 52. But you would think that he would be a more intense and difficult person to go for in kind of the tops of, of the criminals that she could take down. I like the training she undergoes. And it reminds me of the training sequences that we have seen 
of her in the past, you know, with Richard Dragon and Batgirl Year One when we saw that happen, all those things. So I, I like that we do that. And she starts off small, very much like Kung Fu Panda, almost uh, cleaning and, and then, you know, moving up and, and doing other things and, and proving herself and then being taken under the wing of Bane. So why doesn't she defeat Bane as she did all the others? Was it sentiment? She does talk about him being her father, or Batman, and of course the Kamish were her other two. But I mean, she still, I think, to a certain extent, despises him because she hates what he stands for, and she was in there and infiltrated his community uh, in order to take him down. But it's just interesting that, of all people, he's the one that she lets go. And so does she almost love him, or is it just respect? But, you know, if she couldn't do it and, and doesn't still doesn't believe in what he's doing... I take on his mask which is really a symbol of himself and that's something that that doesn't really align with me and doesn't I don't think make sense with with the character that we have here Bette Noir. There's interesting psychology in the end with Bane believing Babs wanted to lose and and upset him on purpose and be broken and back in the chair again. Does it make sense for her to go back to a time before the wedding? I, I think that that's naive just to think that to be broken and be in a chair would bring you back to a time before the wedding happened. The wedding happened, and I don't think she can go back and fix that. I think all of this entire issue is very forward momentum, that she's taking things down. She despises Gotham City now, so she's taking it down from the criminals on the inside out, kind of cleaning it up in, in a more um, feverish way, I'd say, than, than Batman. And so... Would it make sense that she would go from that, which is very a futuristic thinking, to I want to be back to before I even was married and had met Stephen? That happened. You can't go back to that time without remembering that. I mean, her only two options are death, where she would commit suicide, or just go balls to the wall, excuse my French, and just any situation be put in the line of fire and, you know, maybe one time it actually happens. I could definitely see that. We've seen it, I think, before in, in Simone's run. Or she could undergo something like what happened in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which probably wouldn't happen, so you only have really option number one. But that was something that didn't really jive with me. So then Babs rips off the mask in a symbolic gesture. She admits she never took the venom. And so after years, she finally is separating herself uh, from Bane. And, uh, you know, I wondered about this because she didn't take the venom. But my question is, how did she get so big, if that's true? And I actually sent a tweet to Gil Simone. And I asked whether this was a figurative statement, meaning she did take it, but she was never controlled by it, which I think he, I, I wouldn't say he's an addict, but I, I feel like he would never go without it for a long period of time because he does need it in order to, to be strong and show superiority over other people? Or did it mean that she literally didn't take it? And unfortunately, I received no response from Simone. So Simone, if you are listening, I'm still I'm still wondering, so you can email me maybe or or tweet me back but um yeah i just wonder about that what how, how did she get so big if that were true just lots of whey protein who knows so then the back girls are reunited in the end it's a happy ending despite all the misery throughout 
And, you know, this issue, it shows Simone's potential as a writer, and, and I think it was a great way to go out on the run. I loved seeing the League of Batgirls and just thought it was very apropos. The beginning is weak. I think there are some questions regarding Babs's relationship with Bane that don't really jive with me, but it doesn't weaken, I think, the full story and, and just the effect that it has. Good luck to you, Simone, and I hope that you have many happy ventures on other books. I'll give you a 9 out of 10 bats for your final issue. On the other side, we've got Birds of Prey. So, Futures and Birds of Prey, The Red League. Writer Christy Marks, Pensor Robson Rocha, Inkers Eau Claire Albert, and Julio Ferreira, Breakdown Scott McDaniel, and colorist Christopher Sotomayor. Two years ago, Black Canary and her Red League disrupted a human trafficking ring just in time to save one slave girl from an imminent death on account of her resistance. Dinah freed the girls and had them ushered away, focusing in particular on one girl. When the slavers rushed out to take back their assets, Dinah gave the girl earplugs and warned her to stay back. She unleashed a canary cry that dropped the thugs to the floor in agony. The Red League then broke their hands to keep them from using weapons anytime soon. Afterwards, Dinah explained that the League would see that all of the girls got medical attention and then they would have the option to return to their families or find a new start with the League's help. However, Dinah admitted that she'd heard the guards talking about this one particular girl and offered her the chance to join the Red League to be educated and trained and to bring justice to others like her. Gratefully, the girl agreed and Dinah christened her Z. XI. Two years later, Z has excelled in her train. Dinah observed her with pride until she was interrupted with news that the man behind the largest human trafficking ring in Gotham is Paul Howell III. After years of searching, their efforts have paid off at last, and it is time for the Red League to cut the head off the snake. Howell lives on the outskirts of the city in a vast mansion, protected by armed guards and the best security systems. Tonight, though, he will be prey. Dinah has her people hijack their surveillance equipment and jam cell phone frequencies in the area. Then the Red League stealthily sneaks onto the property with the knowledge that their stealth will not last long and how will soon know they are there. However, things go awry quickly when Bette Noir what? intercedes, challenging Dinah to come out and face her. Disturbed, Dinah recognizes the woman's voice as Barbara Gordon's and warns her League not to engage her. When she herself is attacked, she marvels at how strong Barbara has become and demands to know just what happened to her. Angrily, Barbara demands to know the same thing, pointing out that Dinah has taken up the mantle of the demon's head and overtook the League of Assassins. Dinah responds that she took over the League of Assassins in order to destroy it. Rachel Ghoul had not cared about the men who served him. Every member of the Red League is a woman Dinah rescued herself from those who enslaved and abused them, and they serve only justice now. Tired from fighting each other, both women collapse, and Dinah wheezes that she searched for her friend for years. The woman she sees now is not Barbara Gordon, and she is not who Barbara thinks she is. Barbara points out that she has evidence showing that Paul Howe III is an upstanding citizen and challenges Dinah to provide proof of his corruption. Dinah holds up the data stick with the evidence therein and insists that she intends to use it properly. Coldly, Barbara states that she will not interfere in that case, and as she walks away, Dinah offers to let her join the Red League, too. Barbara responds that she has plans for a league of her own. When Dinah and the Red League make their way into the mansion, they find that Hal has killed himself rather than face judgment in this world. Fortunately, Dinah already sent the evidence to every news outlet in the city. His name, at least, will be tarnished. Dinah considers that if Barbara is back in Gotham, she and her Red League won't be needed there anymore and should expand to other cities where their help is needed. 
So I should note at least that this issue would probably take place in sequence previous to Batgirl, so I do apologize for not reviewing it before that since Batgirl goes off in essence to basically create the League of Batgirls. I think we probably or I probably answer my own question about why does Babs go after Bane and not Ra's al Ghul and I guess he's kind of taken care of or he's being taken care of if Dinah was the one to take him down. You know I was just thinking about the fact why is it called the Red League? You kind of wonder about that because Black Canary Red League. I'm sure Chrissy Marks did not intend for this at all but it reminds me of a book called the red tent and i've never read it but it's my understanding that uh it takes place during sort of old testament biblical times and it's this idea that when women in i don't think necessarily a harem but just like a group of people that are probably living in the same area when women are (laughs) having that special time of their month they all go into this like one tent which is called the red tent and they I guess just suffer together during this this week during that time of the month and so I almost wonder because you know red tent if red league has anything uh, to do with that or it's just you know I'm gonna pick up and and have red be be the color that they are uh, portrayed by perhaps to show their dangerous nature who knows so I think something interesting to ask yourself when you're reading all these futures and stories, futures and stories, yes, is whether the stories are reasonable and whether such a future could actually happen with these particular characters. And, you know, is that true of Dinah in this issue? With how we left Dinah in issue number 34, it's hard to see the character going in this particular direction. But I, for one, am glad that she found purpose in her life and purpose without Condor. So, you know, it is five years in the future. Perhaps she had enough of her uh, self just bewailing the fact that life is hard and her husband left her didn't love her as much as she thought he did and now she's she's formed this I could definitely see that as well as her already having an interaction with Rachel Ghoul in the past and perhaps holding that grudge and, and going after him I'm glad that Marx discusses a very real issue in today's world that being sex trafficking and slavery I like that Dinah has repurposed the League of Assassins but to fight for the good of mankind with less lethal means. And I would be interested to know how the takeover actually came about and where Raish is. Is he dead? I mean, did she kill him? And then, well, of course, he's got his Lazarus pits, so I'm sure he's back and doing something, but who knows. It's fitting, I think, that Dinah also takes people that she helps and trains them, as this is basically what happened to her in Zero Year, so very much a get-it-get-it ring composition. Batgirl and Dinah interaction. Uh, I do want to take some time to talk about this. Wow, really, (laughs) it's heavy, it's harsh. Fans of these characters in Birds of Prey New 52 are probably um, (laughs) upset just to see these two very angry at each other more anger I think on the side of Barbara Gordon than Dinah but I think it's certainly believable given what transpired in the previous issue and yes it is tragic Batgirl here or Bette Noir rather has a poor characterization in this issue because again like in Eternal she doesn't do her legwork and doesn't know that Paul is a bad guy and we see that in Eternal and some I think Batgirl issues as well and I wonder you know is she blinded by her angry hurt feelings for Dinah has she bottled up and held these 
hateful and angry upset feelings for five years and now this is when it comes to a head all of the stuff that happened in issue 34 yeah so yeah i think it makes sense uh it's a bummer if she did hold on to it for five years that can't be healthy you know this is something that probably should have happened at the end of 34 them knocking each other around and then finally just realizing this is stupid we both made mistakes let's just get on and and keep going with the birds of prey I'm glad that Dinah's able to talk sense into Babs, something which happened earlier in the Birds of Prey run, if you remember, when Babs first joined the team, or was about to. And then Babs goes off and actually decides to put some purpose to her life. What a letdown that Paul kills himself. How frustrating, since he actually escapes justice, even though Dinah says she will smear his name. And if I can, for a moment, I will say that it reminds me of De Bello Gallico, book one by Julius Caesar. And uh, there's this young man, this elite young man named Orgeterix, and he decides to make this conspiracy among other noble men to move out of their smaller territories and, and and move into greater territories that befits their station and just the the group of Helvetians uh, that's their their tribe that they're living in so a lot of people are into it but then there are sort of elders and almost you can imagine senators if they had that sort of thing uh, that are displeased because of course Orgeterix comes up with this plan but he also wants to be the leader of the entire Helvetian nation and he's brought to trial but he gets out of the trial because he brings about a thousand people with him in order to get out of that trial but then he ends up killing himself and everyone's super upset because he escaped justice so very much reminds me of that so if you're looking for some Latin to read, you be sure to read that. Or, of course, you can find it in English as well. Overall, I think this issue has a better ending to Birds of Prey than number 34. Dinah has purpose, and she has cleaned herself up and seems the character that we have known in the past who provides good advice and is an actual leader. And, you know, that's great. I'm sad that it's ended, though. So, farewell, Birds of Prey. I'm going to give this 7 out of 10 birds. And if you guys are wondering, I mean, I'm only reviewing these two futures and titles, but if you remember last September they had Villains Month, so it seems like possibly each September there's going to be something really big with 50 issues coming out of different things. Villains Month was bad overall. There were a couple good ones, but for the most part they weren't good. I would say that overall these futures and one shots were really great um there were a couple weird ones harley quinn was a little weird that i did but there are some really amazing ones and ones that you wouldn't think would be that good catwoman was really good uh, i really liked the batman and and yeah there are just some really great ones so definitely i would i would check out some of them listen to the batman universe to see what we have to say about the different issues and see if they would be to your liking but i definitely recommend reading more futures end now over to chris for the batman 66 review thank you stella i appreciate you letting me give you a quick break hi everybody welcome once again to the batman 66 review segment glad to be with you today thanks for downloading and as always Thanks for not fast-forwarding. I'm Chris, and this is the segment where I review the Batman 66 titles. We're up to issue number 15 of Batman 66, which was cover-dated November 2014 for hardcopy release. 
This was originally released in download format. The cover art was done once again by Michael and Laura Allred. Our story this issue is entitled Caught in the Widow's Web and is written by Jeff Parker and with art by Wilfred Torres. Our story opens at the Brockman Mansion, where a deal is being closed between Mr. Brockman and Dr. Hollis to finance a new super fuel derived from plants. The Penguin and the Black Widow enter and steal the formula, and then they burn it in a lit fireplace. As the Black Widow kisses Dr. Hollis, she states that she has well-paying clientele who like things the way they are, and that he must forget he ever created the formula as spiders crawl into his ear. The next day at Stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Dick Grayson, Bruce and Dick are outside fencing when Alfred tells the pair that there is a call on the hotline from Commissioner Gordon, who advises them what had just happened. At Gotham Hospital, Batman finds the source of the toxin, a spider's egg sac in Dr. Hollis's inner ear canal. As the duo leave the hospital, Chief O'Hara arrives and tells them that the villains have made off with $163,000 from a bank heist. Batman and Robin find the villain's lair and access the window via a familiar bat climb up the side of the building. No sooner do the two enter, our heroes fall through a trap door and land in a giant spider's web with a hot liquid chemical about to be poured on them. We turn the page and find that the chemical hope to make the webbing more malleable, is moving too slowly to pour. Frustrated, the Black Widow departs, leaving our heroes alone with the Penguin. Thinking fast, Batman tells the Penguin that the Black Widow will dispose of him after she has no more use for him. The Penguin asks for Batman's help if he frees the pair, and Batman agrees. As they all try to escape, the Black Widow is on what appears to be a giant Black Widow, and attacks them all with a flamethrower. Holy marshmallows! However, our heroes manage to spring from the web after it's treated with a chemical from the penguin's umbrella and overpower the Black Widow's henchmen and seize the villainess. A tear drops from her eye as she calls it weakness, alluding to Batman's nature to be helpful. The end. Tallulah Bankhead played the Black Widow only once on the TV series and a two-parter towards the end of the second season. It would be the last acting performance she would ever give. I think her real-life story would be more interesting than any of the roles she had combined. Now, to those unfamiliar with Tallulah Bankhead, she was a success in every medium in her time. Stage, film, radio, and television. She was an outspoken and very uninhibited woman who seized the life in her day. In researching a bit more for her in this podcast, I found some sources that stated uh, she smoked 100 cigarettes a day, and once at a swimming pool party, she went all natural. She is quoted as saying, It's the good girls who keep the diaries. The bad girls never have the time. To say she was a legend would be a gross understatement. Now, in a bad coincidence, Tulula Bankhead was close friends with Estelle Winwood, who herself appeared in the Batman TV series, playing Aunt Hilda in the Marsha Queen of Diamonds episodes. Bruce Willis and Demi Moore named one of their daughters after Tallulah Bankhead. Tallulah Bankhead died in 1968 at age 66. Now there were some minor inconsistencies in the story. Uh, there's a word balloon that's pointed in the wrong direction on page two. On the bottom of page three, Batman says he'll go to the Brockman Mansion, 
But on the very next page, we see him at the mental ward of Gotham Hospital. But there was a nice nod to Delula Banquet herself, as the Black Widow's giant spider is called Lula. I thought the story was something pleasantly different, and told in a scope that couldn't quite be pulled off with the limitations of the 66 TV series. Fans of the TV show will also recall that Penguin teamed up with other villains, such as the Joker and Marsha Queen of Diamonds on other occasions. I think it was interesting to see him actually bargain with Batman as well. I thought that this was an above-average story with decent artwork. I got a story with a cliffhanger and a death trap, which is something I always like to see in this series. So I'm giving Batman 66, number 15, eight and a half out of ten bats. <laughs> now I also notice that the penguin is smoking on the cover, and I wonder if he's the only comic book character who can get away with smoking on a comic book cover in this day and age. Okay, we now move on to Batman 66 meets the Green Hornet, number five, the penultimate issue of the series. The chapter is entitled, The Duo Sticks Together, and it's written by Kevin Smith and Ralph Garfman, with art by Ty Templeton and John Bogdanov, with additional links by Vincente Cifuentes and the Mad Pencil Studio, including Roberto Flores, Andres Cruz, Carlos Munoz, and Ted Keys. The magnificent cover art was provided once again by the great Alex Ross. Our story opens with Batman and Robin, and they are about to become victims of the greatest stamp crime, courtesy of the Joker and General Gum. Our heroes are bound by glue on a marble base and about to be stamped to death by a giant pasta stamp suspended above them, held by chains as the Joker sets a torch next to the chain that's holding it up. The villains and the henchmen depart, of course, and Batman notices a giant bottle of balsamic vinegar also suspended above their heads. Holy croutons, Batman! This is a heck of a time to be thinking about salad dressing. Batman notes that the base they are on is made of marble, it's a crystalline form of calcium carbonate and susceptible to acid. And that balsamic vinegar has a very high acidity level. Robin manages to get his hand loose from his bound glove and tosses a batarang at the vinegar bottle, allowing vinegar to douse the base, and her heroes manage to get free just in the nick of time. Batman and Robin then race to the Batcave and change into clean costumes, and then they receive a hotline call summoning them to police headquarters. Once they arrive, they see District Attorney Frank Scanlon there from Green Hornet City, as well as the Green Hornet and Cato themselves. Scanlon states that Franco Bolo blames his city and Gotham City as well for the thefts of his fossil and coin collections, and he is suing both of the respective cities. Scanlon has offered temporary immunity to the Green Hornet and Cato, and a team-up is proposed in order to capture the Joker and General Gum. Now, speaking of our villains, they are flying in a surplus war bomber above Gotham City at that very moment. And then they find out that Batman and Robin are alive, so they plan to drop a bomb on Gotham Central Park. Outside police headquarters, our heroes hear the Batmobile's long-range bomb bat detector going off. Batman and the Green Hornet send their sidekicks away to help evacuate the park, while Batman hopes to blow the bomb out of the sky with his Batzooka with Green Hornet as his spotter. To be continued. Whew! Okay, I thought this was a huge turnaround from the last issue, which, to borrow a phrase from Madame Carolla, seemed to be a pinata filled with nothing. The previous issue had a great cover, very little content inside. But in this issue, we had a death trap, we had a cliffhanger, we had excellent dialogue with the nuances and inflection from the TV series. I am giving Batman 66 meets the Green Hornet number 5, 8.5 out of 10 bats. Now, before I go, I want to wish everyone out there a happy Halloween for those celebrating. Hopefully you've gotten your costume by now, or at least you have something picked out. 
I'd also like to give a quick shout-out to those who mentioned the Batgirl to Oracle podcast on the Talking Comics website. I agree that Stella does a wonderful job with her podcast, and we appreciate those spreading the word. I feel very grateful to be part of such a wonderful podcast, and it wouldn't be possible without you, our listeners. Thank you. What eccentric villain will appear in the next issue of Batman 66? How will Two-Face, a villain never seen in the Batman 66 series, come to appear in a forthcoming Batman 66 comic book story? What bookish villain returns to confound Batgirl in a future issue of Batman 66 to those of a delicate nature? Download the next podcast at your own risk. These and other perplexing questions to be answered next time. Same Stella time. Same Stella sight. And now, making its triumphant return, Babs in the Tube. If you remember, friends, from way long ago, this segment is where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film, and I'm about to start the 1977 New Adventures of Batman television series. And here we have it, The New Adventures of Batman, it's episode 2, The Moon Man, air date February 17th, 1977, starring Adam West as Batman slash Bruce Wayne, Burt Ward as Robin slash Dick Grayson, Lou Scheimer as Batmite and the Batcomputer, that's right, Batmite, Lenny Wainrib as Commissioner Gordon, Moon Man, and Scott Rogers, and Scott Rogers actually looks a lot like Donovan Morgan Grant. So the synopsis is, a strange moon man steals original moon samples to gain energy and take revenge on Earthlings for conquering the Earth's satellite. Bruce and Dick have a visit from an old friend who happens to be an astronaut giving conferences. However, the astronaut's strange behavior tickles the mind of Barbara Gordon. And as Batgirl, she wants to know a bit more about this. And as I promised, you will have the full audio clip. So about 20 minutes, you've got this episode. You'll have to use your imagination for some of the um, the sound effects. I do hope you enjoy, so take a listen. Greetings, Bat fans. This is Batman. And Robin, the boy wonder. And me too, Batmite. Welcoming you to the new adventures of Batman. Watch us wage our never-ending battle of good versus evil. Ride with us as we chase the greatest array of villains the world has ever seen, proving that crime does not pay. Get set for thrills and action. Join me, Batman. And me, Robin the Boy Wonder. And Batgirl. And me too, Batmite. In the super new adventures of Batman.
hold it. Just put that back and stay where you are. Security, this is Ryan. Red alert! Red alert! I forgot to read all of the directions. Everything's cool, little buddy. I needed something to wake me up. I must be the sleepiest house guest you two guys ever had. You're probably still recovering from your last mission. Yeah. Being the first astronaut to solo to the moon and back has got to take a lot out of you. Well, it was easy compared to all these public appearances I'm making now. Ah, well, I guess being a famous and handsome astronaut has its drawbacks. Now there's the Scott Rogers I remember from college. A swell guy with a swelled head. <laughs> hey, listen, I have to run to another speaking engagement downtown, but I'll see you guys later tonight, okay? Sure thing. Gosh, Bruce, they sure keep Scott busy. He's not the only one. Look. The bat signal. To the bat cave, Dick. with magnetic mitts. Sounds weird, Commissioner. What's even weirder is that the only thing he took from the entire museum was this moon rock. A moon rock? The press is already calling him the mysterious moon man. Well, they're right about one thing, Ms. Gordon. He is mysterious. We'll see how mysterious he is once he's in handcuffs. We have to catch him first, Barbara. We'll get the bat computer working on it, Commissioner. <laughs>
be busy, busy. Huh, guys? Bat mites. Listen, the moon man's right down my alley. Me being from outer space myself. So let's just erase what you've done so far and start over. Oh, no, you little squirt. What did I do? What did I do? Nothing yet, and that's the way we want to keep it. Just sit tight and don't get too close. Ah, bat baloney. In conclusion, I say we are all space pioneers because we all share the responsibility of how we deal with this newest frontier, the moon. Scott, are you all right? Yeah. Thanks, Barbara. I just got a little clumsy for a minute. You had me worried. Ah, oh, no sweat. Just let me go freshen up and I'll be a-okay. Uh, that's astronaut talk. Roger. Holy overeating, Batman. We fed the computer every clue we have on the Moon Man, and it's still not enough. And we'll have to do our own computing for a while. Think, Robin. Why would anyone with powers like the Moon Man walk through an entire museum and only take one moon rock? Maybe he's a goon for the moon. You know, a real loner loony. <laughs> Bat mite. That's it. You mean, it is? I mean, of course it is. I guess. Batman, suppose our thief is nuts about moon objects. Where would he strike next? The new moon ride. Gotham City Fun Park is proud to present its newest attraction, the astounding, the colossal Moon Ride. The only roller coaster in the world with rails of actual moon metal. Now, these lucky youngsters get to be our very first customers. Ready to go, Scott? Let's hope we get there before the Moon Man does, Robin. Holy roller coasters, we're too late. There's only one thing to do. Bat gyros away. Robin. I'm giving it, Batman. I'm giving it. But the engine's starting to overheat.
magnetism's affecting my controls. as Earth has been. That dastardly dude's getting away! We'll have to forget him for now, Boy Wonder. Lives are at stake. Don't worry, I'll stop him! Oh, no you don't, you lunar loony! again, this time at the fun park. He's reported headed your way. 10-4. <gasps> I'll keep my eyes open. Oh! Scott! Where have you been? I, uh, went for a walk. You know, to get some fresh air. What did you walk on? Your hands? Huh? Scott! 
Scott, are you sure you're feeling all right? Believe me, Barbara, I'm fine. I'm a big boy and I can take care of myself, okay? Okay, okay. C can I drive you home? I know the way. Activate the voice analyzer, Robin. Activated, Batman. But whose voice are we analyzing? The Moon Man's. What? I managed to tape him with my mini-corner. Far out! Now, let's see if our computer can identify his voice print. I shall return to the moon what is the moon's. She will not be robbed of her resources as Earth has been. If Scott won't talk to me, maybe he'll talk to that girl. He shouldn't be too far ahead. Something's happening to me. I don't know what it is. But maybe talking about it into this tape machine will help me think it through. I've never needed help on anything before, and there's no reason I can't handle this by myself, too. The Moon Man's voice doesn't match any voice print in our crime file. But there's something about that voice, Robin. Something familiar. Batgirl calling Batman and Robin. Batgirl! Zowie! Let me talk to her. Let me talk to her. Go ahead, Batgirl. I just located Scott Rogers' car on Canyon Road. But he's gone. I'm worried about him, Batman. Listen to this tape I found. Something's happening to me. I don't know what it is, but maybe talking about it into this tape machine will help me think it through. Holy double identity! The voice analyzer was still on, and it's matched the Moon Man's voice. With Scott! Barely. That was some quake. The back computer reports an unknown force pulling the moon from its orbit. Unless it's stopped, the resulting earthquakes and tidal waves will tear our world apart. Holy catastrophes, Batman! You don't think the moon man, I mean, Scott Rogers, is? That's exactly what I think, Robin. He's pulling his biggest caper of all, stealing the moon itself. In. Our magnetometer indicates heavy magnetic radiation coming from the Gotham Observatory. I'll meet you there.
man. There he is. He's using that giant radio telescope to focus his magnetic energy and beam it at the moon. Scott, this is Batman. Listen to me. Hang on, Robin. I can't control it. I humbly suggest we think of something, and fast. There's a tidal wave forming beyond Gotham Harbor. And a water spout. Robin, remember Scott telling us about that comet that shot past his space capsule when he was circling the moon? Yeah. My guess is that comet exposed him to some kind of radiation that combined with moonlight changes him into the moon man. If that's true, cutting off his supply of moonlight ought to restore him to normal. But you can't just turn off the moon. Oh, yes, we can. It's working. What... what happened? Where am I? Scott, you're the only person who can save Earth from total destruction. You must return the moon to its orbit. But I... I... I can't. As the moon man, you can. I'll help you. What do you say, Scott? Time's running out. Okay, Batman. I'll try. Return the moon. What? It must be set free from Earth's influence. Scott, think. What good is it to save the moon if no one is left to look at it? You're about to destroy the world. But it is so hard, and I'm so tired. Don't give up. You can do it. The moon is moving back again. But the magnetometer shows that Scott's powers are fading. So tired. No energy. Just a little more, Scott. He did it. And just as his powers failed for good. Congratulations, Scott. That took a lot of courage. I couldn't have done it without your help. How can I ever thank you all? That's what friends are for. I realize that now. As for the Moon Man's crimes, I'm sure Commissioner Gordon will agree with me that you have no worries. Is all the shaking and quaking over with? Huh? Huh? Relax, Batmite. Everything's cool. Well, that's good. Because I was starting to get mad about it, and when I get mad... Earthquake! Earthquake! I think we've seen the last of Batmite for a while. And the last of the Moon Man forever. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> We 
sure had some problems with the Moon Man tonight. And they were problems that could have been solved much sooner if only Scott Rogers had been willing to discuss what was bothering him. We all have problems from time to time, and it sure helps to talk them out with people we trust. I got a problem. I can't swim. Why is that a problem? Because I can't fix leaks either. Oh, no. And finally, my literature recommendations. Well, I did Count of Monte Cristo in about 10 days. I then decided to read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because the 8th grade English curriculum, they actually just started reading that by Robert Louis Stevenson. I read that in two days. Loved it. It was great. I also very much, I should have read that a long time ago because I really like the Broadway musical uh, Dr. Jekyll or just Jekyll and Hyde. So I really like it. So it's 88 pages, super easy. I mean, it's a novella, so it's super easy to read in a couple of days. Hopefully, I mean, I don't even know how to give a synopsis of that book without giving it away. But basically, uh, Dr. Jekyll is this, this kindly guy. He's not perfect, but he is pursued and threatened by this Mr. Hyde character. And then there's an interesting connection between the two of them that is shocking at the very end, but I shall not spoil it. And then I just finished Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, and this is actually on the 12th grade curriculum. It's funny how my reading list is now intersecting with the place that I work and the books there. And right now I'm reading Brave New World, which I'm not really liking that much, and next I'll read Hamlet, so there you go. But Frankenstein is just great. Uh, follows Dr. Frankenstein and... Of course, he creates this creature and guilt-ridden and, and hateful of the creature, I guess, of this creation that he wrought and, and he flees and then the creature feels abandoned and, and he is searching for love and in all the wrong places. I was looking for love in all the wrong places Looking for love in too many faces Searching their eyes, looking for traces of what He's searching for love, and he asks for a companion. Frankenstein says yes, and then says no, and then after that, basically, Frank, uh, the creature says that he is going to make Frankenstein's life a living hell, which he does. So very much, uh, I like how these two, I'm glad I read them back to back, because both of them, Jekyll and Hyde and Frankenstein, deal with just the nature of good and evil and, and what's inside of us and things like that, and just mirror images so yes i definitely recommend both of those just very interesting and i'm hoping to see at the 
theater that's around here, they are going to be showing the National Theater Live uh, production of Frankenstein. It's starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller. And what's really awesome is that the two of them play both parts. So one showing, we could have Benedict Cumberbatch as the doctor and Johnny Lee Miller as the creature. And then the next showing, we could have Johnny Lee Miller as the doctor and Benedict Cumberbatch as the creature. And I think doing that could really explore and and have them thoroughly know these characters and and I think just explore the connection between the two of them and their similarities and yeah they cast colorblind uh, which I think is just awesome so a couple of their cast members are black I know Elizabeth is black and I think the female creature which I'm a little confused how they use her because in the book she was just parts and then she is destroyed so she never really had a life but she's also black so so yeah so I'm looking forward to seeing that and that is all for this episode isn't that's actually great I read those because this is you know Halloween this is the Halloween month and I read those sort of gothic horrors Remember, you can send any questions or comments to BatgirlToOracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at BatgirlToOracle. And like the Batman Universe on Facebook as well. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics and Tweaked Audio for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. I'm hoping for an awesome and spectacular October, and hopefully this is just the beginning of that. So fingers crossed for me that something that I really want to happen happens for this show. And it got hot. It was cool, but it got hot again. I hope it uh, gets cooler again and the leaves start changing. And, oh, my gosh, pumpkin, 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 everything. Loving the PSL and haven't gotten a Dairy Queen pumpkin blizzard yet, but I hope to at some point. And I tell you, one day I was calling around to all these different places. I called into Coldstone Creamery, and I swear that I started talking to someone from uh, the Caribbean and you know asking do you have pumpkin ice cream and she's saying say what and 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 i said well do, do you have any pumpkin ice is this cold stone creamery and she said yeah we don't get pumpkin ice cream until the second week of october and then you know i go to uh, visit my parents for my, my mother's birthday and i see a cold stone and look at that they've got pumpkin ice cream so that's ugh. So anyways, waiting for that, I checked Sweet Frog. They didn't have the pumpkin ice cream. Went to this ice cream place that makes its own ice cream. No pumpkin ice cream yet. So I'm just waiting for that. I am waiting for the pumpkin ice cream. So I hope you all are able to get some pumpkin ice cream by the next time I talk to you. Okay, well, take care. And until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?